hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And this week we have returned with another AFI Top 100 film, our so-called canonical list. This one in question is number 55, North by Northwest. North by Northwest. Not to be confused with South by Southwest and... A, not an a music festival in austin texas which is what my wife had confused the title of and asked <laughs> if there's any any connection i have no idea uh, i think that the south by southwest is a play on the title but i think that's it in any case we watched it the hitchcock film from this 1959 our, it's our first hitchcock film yeah sure is there are several on the list i believe three maybe it is not our first Cary Grant film, however. No, it is not. We saw him in Bringing Up Baby. We sure did. A much younger Cary Grant. Yes, he's he's getting a little long in the tooth in this one. Sure is, which makes some parts of this film a little confusing. Mm, definitely. But in any case, Ethan, why don't you start us off with a plot synopsis? North by Northwest is the story of Roger Thornhill, who is mistaken for spy... George Kaplan. After being mistaken, he is abducted by two men who bring him to Lester Townsend's home in Long Island, where criminal Philip Van Dam interrogates Thornhill. Thornhill, despite his claims of ignorance, is forced to drink a bottle of bourbon and set up to have a drunk driving accident by the criminals. Thornhill, however, escapes and is detained by police for driving while intoxicated. The police do not believe his story, and when they return to Townsend's home the next day, his wife denies Thornhill's story, acting as though she is his friend and he drank too much at a dinner party. She reveals Townsend is a UN ambassador, and when Thornhill confronts him at the UN, one of Van Damme's men throws a knife into his back and frames Thornhill for the murder. Thornhill flees and begins searching for the real Kaplan. The film then shifts to a secret government committee in Washington, D.C., who reveal that Kaplan is not a real person, but a construct. They decide against saving Townsend for the moment, as they fear that he could ruin their cover. Meanwhile, Thornhill escapes onto the 20th century limited train from New York to Chicago and meets Eve Kendall, who covers for him in front of the police. The two have dinner together, and Eve hides Thornhill in her cabin. The two connect romantically, but Eve is revealed to be secretly working for Van Damme. In Chicago, Eve pretends to set a meeting up between Kaplan and Thornhill, but when Thornhill arrives at the rural bus stop Rendezvous, he is attacked by a crop-dusting plane, which eventually crashes into an oil tanker, and Thornhill escapes in a stolen truck. When he returns to Chicago, he discovers Eve had lied about her contact with Kaplan, and eventually follows her to an art auction where he castigates her and Van Damme. Rather than leave the auction to be killed, he gets himself arrested and meets up with The Professor, the head of the shadowy government agency. Thornhill is filled in on the situation and agrees to help save Eve, who is a double agent. He follows Van Damme and his men to Mount Rushmore and goads Eve into shooting him. However, her gun is filled with blanks and he survives. The two have a meeting in the woods, but Thornhill learns that Eve will be leaving the country with Van Damme. 
Thornhill, upset, goes to save her and learns that Van Damme and his right-hand man have discovered her treachery and plan to toss her from their plane into the ocean. He saves her, and the two try to escape with the microfilm that contains spy secrets hidden in a sculpture won at the art auction. The two are chased to the top of Mount Rushmore. As they climb down it to escape, Van Damme's men give chase, and just as Thornhill and Eve are about to be killed, the government agency intervenes and saves them. The film ends with Eve and Thornhill married, traveling by train, and as the two climb into bed together, the train enters a tunnel, suggestively, and the credits roll. Ethan, I have a lot of issue with the plot of this film. (laughs) Just in sheer continuity. So I want to break some convention, give you my thesis now, and then talk about some of my concerns, and then we can kind of play out the rest of the episode as we go throw it at me matt okay so i think this action adventure romance thriller potentially comedy experiences an amount of genre confusion and is therefore difficult for a modern audience to parse i think on top of that we have a lot of surface level plot issue for instance why are van damme's men at this hotel looking for kaplan Ostensibly, it's because Kaplan is there, right? That he is checked into that that hotel. But how are they mistaking Thornhill for Kaplan in that moment? Uh, This I have an answer to because I was kind of unclear about that and had to do a little bit of reading because, of course, this is so early on in the film um, that, you know, you, you have to be... The thing about watching a Hitchcock film is this. You have to pay close attention from from the moment the film begins um and even knowing this i made the mistake of not paying tight tight attention um so i did a little bit of reading and what it is in that moment is kaplan's name is called Mm -hmm. as though there's a i guess the the men are looking for him and they're and and so the mater d or whoever calls his name at that moment, um, Kaplan calls over the busboy to be able to make the, that phone call that he makes to what? Thornhill, uh, his not secretary. Kaplan. Or, yeah, Thor, Thor, whatever, Thornhill. Um, look, we're already fucking up. Well, I'm already fucking up the names. Um, but he just happens to raise his hand for the busboy to call his secretary to correct a mistake he made as these men call Kaplan's name or for for whatever reason Kaplan's name is called, right? That is how they mistake him. Yeah, I think I got that, but the thing I don't get is why Kaplan's name is called at all. Well, the the men are looking for him, I guess. So I these think two that... cronies go into the, ho- the hotel and say, oh, we need to find this super secret spy and do away with him. Okay, great. I guess we'll just have the Mater D call his name. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, that's not a great plan, but... It... Yes, that is ostensibly what they do. <laughs> they also know where his hotel room is, right? That seems to be fairly easy knowledge to get because Thornhill, who is not a spy, is able to just ask, you know, what's room he's staying in. And so they could have busted down the door and taken him out if they thought that's where he was. This is a, an interesting trope of these sort of um, late 50s, early to mid 60s films um, that kind of amuses me because last night when I finished up this film, uh, I popped in another 
fantastic uh, Hitchcock film that I've seen before, Psycho, which also involves uh, hotels. Um, and it reminded me also of The Graduate, um, where hotels feature prominently. And it reminded me how much smaller the world was, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, when you just wrote your name in a register. There weren't computers. You, you know, you wrote these things down and you could just come in and say, I'm meeting this person. What room are they in? And the people would tell you the world was a, a different place. It's so bizarre because nowadays you can't walk into a hotel and say, especially a high end hotel in the city and say, hey, by the way, um, I, what room is Matt Bazell in? I'm here to see him. They would say, I'm sorry, I can't give you that information. Uh, but this is the 1960s, the late 50s, early 60s, you know, uh, and you could just do that shit. And I guess also that your henchmen are just worse back in those days because on top of that little maybe somewhat picky issue with the film i think it's also incredibly strange that they would hire a crop dusting plane outfitted with machine guns to try to shoot down thornhill in the middle of nowhere when they could have very easily done the plan exactly the same except for have one of those cars driving by just be a guy with a gun and just mow them down right there Oh, get ready for this, Matt. You know what that crap dusting plane was supposed to be in a very early version of this film, in a conceptual version? What's that? This was supposed to be a tornado. The men, there was a concept that, I don't know if it was uh, Hitchcock himself or one of the screenwriters or producers, there was a concept where, and I, and I think this is even before there was much of a plot, they wanted to have a scene in which the evil people uh employ a tornado to kill to try to kill the protagonist um but of course the question becomes how the fuck do you kill someone with a tornado you can't just summon a tornado i don't know it might be more effective than just having someone drink a bottle of bourbon and just send them off down a road true also how did they force him to drink that bourbon that's one of those things i'm like wait what what? I mean, I guess you pinch his nose and you just pour it down his mouth. Maybe he just really did want to drink the bourbon. And so he's like, whatever. If I'm going to die, I might as well be drunk for it. I don't blame him. I like a good bourbon. So there are some rickety bridges between plot points for me. It's a thriller. You know, it's not meant to to really be a a plot to, that you interrogate right this is part it's i think the genre convention here that that goes throughout is that you're you're kind of along for the ride it's it's a thriller it's an adventure film right um i read somewhere that that people have called it the first james bond film because this comes out just a couple of years before uh dr no right so you've got a a, a dashingly good looking protagonist there are spies there's a woman they do glamorous things. There's adventure, right? So perhaps what you're seeing is genre confusion is is really a sort of prototypical uh, approach to the thriller, which you know includes a lot of these things, or the Bond film, right? Because Bond films include all of these uh, sorts of ridiculous situations and tropes, right? It's it's not we're not in reality, certainly. Well, I think the place I disagree is that if you're going to have a thriller that is very dependent upon plot. So where I think James Bond is very character-driven, right? It's about the eccentric, flamboyant villain. 
and the incredibly suave James Bond and whatever femme fatale he happens to be aligned with in that film. Something like this is really dependent on the revelation that there is no George Kaplan, the revelation that Eve is actually a spy. No, wait, she's actually a double agent, right? It's all about these revelations, I think, throughout the film, and they're supposed to be the payoff. And so when you can't quite come to terms with everything outside of the conceit, I think it becomes difficult. I mean, yeah, I can absolutely see that uh, that view of this film. But I think, too, this film is about sort of... Uh, well, I think this film is about identity, really. Um, and I think that we can maybe spread that out a little bit to genre and to sort of how we approach what the payoff is going to be, right? The plot, yes, the plot drives it, but the plot is less important than the identity of the characters in the film, right? Um, we get to see uh, Thornhill turn into Kaplan uh, at a certain point, right? He actually, you know, buys into this uh, identity that's been thrust upon him when he, right, when he goes to the art gallery, the art auction, Right. There's a there's a point there where it's the identity of the characters, I think, that is the payoff, maybe not the actual plot. I mean, the, the I mean, this film has a MacGuffin, right, which is a big um, uh, Hitchcock sort of device. Right. He does this in many films is this idea of the MacGuffin, the thing that everybody's after that we don't even really care what it is. It's just what they're after. That's the microfilm. Right. Who the fuck knows what's in that microfilm? We never find out. It doesn't matter. Right. What really matters is seeing Thornhill and Eve be able to shift back and forth and step into roles and step out of roles uh, and and discover all of that. We're, you know, we're long for the ride. Does that make sense? It sounds convincing, except for I think just Thornhill's just complete tool bag. Like his mode of investigation <laughs> into Kaplan is just slipping himself deeper into this issue and getting more people to think he's Kaplan when he's trying to be trying to convince everyone that he's Thornhill. And what he does is Thornhill is actually make himself a murderer, right? Not in actuality, but right. that's what the press has, has decided he is. And that's with his, you know, true identity. I don't know. It just, it just seems so strange to have the film play out the way it does. And I think part of this is that it just feels too long. It's two hours and 15 minutes long, and it's a action thriller. Something about that just seems really off to me. It's so strange. I felt like this film was was short. I would have watched another hour of this film. I thought it was honest. never ending. I thought it was just, it just kept going. So I think most of the stuff in the first 30 minutes could probably just straight go, right? We have his mother as a character that goes absolutely nowhere. There's absolutely no reason for her to be in the film. Yeah, I mean... I, I, I guess I agree. When we really break this down to the the parts that make it that make it up, but I think there is something about Hitchcock's style as a filmmaker that really engages me as a viewer, um, because I spent the first I don't know third of this film. Uh, like just wait like what is going on is he really thornhill is he really uh kaplan what's going on with his mother um and then when we get that reveal i was like what kaplan's not real and then i was like wait a second there's gonna there's gotta be another twist um and so i guess i was always sort of waiting for the next 
bit and some of that i think has to do with the way that uh hitchcock sets things up at, for, for us as viewers that just really appeals to me that I, I you never quite trust or at least i, ne- I find myself never quite trusting what i'm seeing with uh Hitchcock, because he does so many of these shots that are from our point of view, right? We we act as, or from characters' points of view, right? We act as voyeurs. I think that the first 20 minutes or so of this film are very meandering. I think almost nothing that happens in those minutes gets looped back into the story in a significant way. I mean, Van Damme does say to Leonard at the end, before they get on the plane, Hey, tell your sister thanks for being Mrs. Townsend. That was pretty cool. She did a good job. But there's that whole scene, you know, making him be cast in doubt was a really strange move. I feel like a criminal organization that's interesting and interested in silencing someone is not going to go through this whole big rigmarole to reduce his credibility and make him pay a two dollar fine. That, no, that, that that's that's a that I I looked that up. I had that same thing. It's not actually a two dollar fine. That's an, that's an expression, because I was like, listen, I'm obsessed with checking inflation calculations, right, and seeing what what all those things mean. You know, even if it's just you know fifty or sixty years ago, the idea of pay the two dollar fine uh, comes from uh, a little skit where there's a. Uh, if I remember this correctly, there's the story goes this roughly. There's a man who does something. He gets in trouble. They take him to jail. His lawyer says, don't plead guilty. We can win this. He doesn't plead guilty. And it escalates and escalates and escalates. And then he's about to be electrocuted over a $2 fine. Right. And and someone's like, just pay the $2 fine. Um, but I think he dies or something in the end. I, the, the point here is that the, the $2 fine is like nothing that escalates. So that was a figure of speech because I was like, what? $2 for drunk driving? No way. So I don't get his actual consequences in that. And they're not death. And it's certainly not jail. So maybe he's just awaiting a court date or something. Yeah, I, I think he's facing probably a actual hefty fine and maybe some jail time. But it's not in the film and that doesn't seem to be really stopping the criminal organization if they want to do away with Kaplan this drunk driving thing is not actually going to do it so the fact they set this whole thing up doesn't really work my point is is that I think the earlier part of the film is just meandering and not to any kind of purpose I think is employed in the film what we really get started at is that secret federal corporation team I think it's they say alphabet soup Right, so FBI, CIA, DEA, whomever, yeah. meeting, right? I take that to be our pivotal scene, in fact, because that's where we actually get the conceit of the film, that George Kaplan doesn't exist, and all the events of this film are trying to kill a person that isn't real. Yeah, so do you want to play that pivotal scene then? Of course. The photograph has been tentatively identified as that of Roger Thornhill, Manhattan advertising executive. Indicating that the name of George Kaplan, which he gave to an attendant at the General Assembly building, is false. Possible motive for the slaying, suggested by the discovery, that earlier today, Thornhill had appeared to Glen Cove, Long Island Police Court, charged with drunk driving with a stolen car. In his defense, he charged that the murder victim, Mr. Townsend, had tried to kill him the night before. Brother. What about that? 
Does anyone know this Thornhill? No, not me. Never heard of it. Professor? Apparently, the poor sucker got mistaken for George Kaplan. How can he get mistaken for George Kaplan when George Kaplan doesn't even exist? Don't ask me how it happened. Obviously, it happened. Van Damme's men must have grabbed him, tried to put him away, using Lester Townsend's house. And the unsuspecting Mr. Townsend winds up with a stray knife in his back. Say, Laguerre. So horribly sad. How is it I feel like laughing? What are we going to do? Do? About Mr. Thornhill. We, uh, we do nothing. Nothing? That's right, nothing. Oh, we could congratulate ourselves on a marvelous stroke of good fortune. Our non-existent decoy, George Kaplan, created a divert suspicion from our actual agent, has fortuitously become a live decoy. Yes, Professor. And how long do you think he'll stay alive? Well, that's his problem. What Mrs. Finley means is... Uh, oh, I know what she means. We can't sit back calmly and wait to see who kills him first. Van Damme and company, or the police. What can we do to save him without endangering our own agent? Aren't we being just a wee bit callous? No, my dear woman, we're not being callous. We didn't invent our non-existent man and give him the name of George Kaplan and establish elaborate behavior patterns for him move his prop belongings in and out of hotel rooms for our own private amusement. We created George Kaplan and labored successfully to convince Van Damme that this was our own agent hot on his trail for a desperately important reason. Check. Nobody's denying that. Very well, then. If we make the slightest move to suggest that there is no such agent as George Kaplan, give any hint to Van Damme that he's pursuing a decoy instead of our own agent, then our agent, working right under Van Damme's very nose, will immediately face suspicion, exposure, and assassination. Like the two others who went before. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are. We hear the professor, as he's called, talk about really callously how they need to let Thornhill die because he's been caught in this sort of strange scheme they've got going, right? George Kaplan exists on paper. He actually exists somewhat in the world in that he's renting hotel rooms, he's having um, suits cleaned, he's having his room cleaned, all these things. And that is to throw them off the trail of who we later learn to be Eve, right? She is the agent that is close to Van Damme. So this was inspired by Operation Mincemeat, where the Allied powers in World War II load up a corpse with a bunch of fake documents about an invasion, I think in like Sicily or Italy somewhere in, you know, Axis occupied territory that they bite on, which helped something like Normandy come off as really where it shouldn't have, right? They had all sorts of psychological warfare stuff set up. They had, I think they had inflatable tanks and planes on the English coast as close to France as possible. And like Normandy was like, yeah, yeah. There are all sorts of crazy things that, that the Allies did. I had no idea. Yeah, and that's what this movie's based off of, or that's where the movie gets its conceit from. And so I think that idea is really, really cool. I just don't think that's really played up in this film that much. Well, I would argue this, and I think this is maybe true of of a lot of thrillers um, in the James Bond style, um, which I think that this is, is absolutely part of. Um, or at least a, a sort of progenitor of. Um, I think that a lot of that stuff 
ends up, you know, the, the, the stuff you have problems with at the beginning of this film doesn't really matter in the large scheme of things, but that's okay. I almost pictured this film as a Disney World theme park style ride, right? Like where you start at the beginning and you're on rails, right? And you have it, a lot of it is experience, right? You're you're going through this to to have an exciting in the moment thing and and you're not meant to really dwell on a lot of these earlier details right they set it up almost as a bait and switch uh like his mother shows up and there's all that weird stuff with his mom um and there's the drunk driving charge and all this sort of stuff and that falls to the wayside once we get to the real meat of it but what that serves i think in a way is to mislead us right is to get us interested in sort of like what's going on here we're always asking questions there's always there's there's pivots and then it's it plants this seed of doubt um and i really had this experience watching this film i was like when is that next twist coming and we do get one with eve right and finding out that eve is a double agent right she's not just working for van damme she's working for the the alphabet soup uh government agency right and she shoots uh thornhill but of course it's a fake gun but then the fake gun comes back late right there, there's just it's it's sort of twist after twist after twist after twist but can i ask you a question about these ethan yeah go ahead were you actually misled by any of these twists i didn't know that eve was going to be a double agent i suspected perhaps at the very beginning, I thought that there was a slight possibility that Thornhill might actually be Kaplan in some way, shape, or form. Um, I was never quite sure, but this also may come from the fact that uh, I went into this film understanding that Hitchcock does twists, right? Hitchcock fucks with his audience, um, and he does it purposefully. Uh, and I'm not a huge Hitchcock scholar person, whatever. I've only seen, uh, you know, a handful of films, but the ones I have and what I do know about him, right, is that he does do these things. He loves to play with the audience and he loves to embed things, um, and, and give us sort of misleading threads. Um, so that certainly colored my viewing of this film. I knew she was the agent pretty much as he met her she had access to all kinds of information about him that just didn't seem plausible for a random woman to have additionally she is very much playing the femme fatale role of oh i find you so irresistible which i also i think that's why that weird moment when he escapes the what is it hospital at the end of the film and he's crawling through the other lady's woman's window and she's like stop and he's like, no. And she's like, oh, stop. It's clear it's like a sexual thing. And he's right, well, she, like, puts her, uh... she puts her glasses on. I, that, I loved that moment. That, because she's like, stop, stop. And then she puts on her glasses and sees it's fucking Cary Grant. And she's like, oh, stop. And, ah. <laughs> I, actually, I actually read that as that's not her being. It's not Cary Grant being sexually irresistible. Because he's like an older man at this point. And right. it's, we're stretching a little bit his credibility as like a sex icon or something but i think so i took it as she's another plant of the alphabet soup in case he's trying to escape 
she's supposed to trap him with sex. Oh, uh, well, that's possible. I don't necessarily disagree with you. She looks remarkably like Eve. Like she's Eve, another blonde. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that that's one of the wonderful things about this film. One of the things I really liked about this film is that there is a lot of ambiguity in lots of small moments, right? Uh, like the one you just brought up. Um, and we could maybe talk a little bit about the ending, right? Uh, because I finished this film and the ending is abrupt. I don't know if you had the same experience I did. I got whiplash based on the transition of the final moment of the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, and Olivia watched this with me uh, and she had the same thing. She was like, why did it transition like that? And my initial response was I was like, they're dead. It didn't that the ending is a dream. Uh, it's a fantasy um, because it transitions so quickly and so strangely. And and then you have that penis joke at the end. Yeah. I, but at the same time, maybe that's I, I don't know. There's a lot of ways we can read that. I read it as just expedient, that they were doing it just to say... To wrap it up? Wrap it up. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's one way to look at it, right? But I, but I love that Hitchcock does these things where... I, there, I think there really is an argument to be made for a couple of these different moments, like those that we've brought up, and I'm sure there are many others we could probably delve into, but, you know. I'll say this, Ethan, before we turn to our three questions... Is eight feet of film was cut from this as in terms of editing, which eight feet of film boils down to about five seconds. So that's it of the stuff that they shot, they cut five seconds. And so once I learned that fact, my entire rest of my viewing of this film was so everything else here is necessary, huh? And my one of my projects, I think, in, in viewing this was thinking. Like, what could have been taken away from here? How would have I edited this differently to make it something like a 90-minute packed action thriller? And yeah. I think just taking five seconds away, I don't think that's genius. I think that is someone who's been labeled a genius and is allowed to do what they want. And you see this a lot with novelists today, right? The most successful sure. novelists don't actually edit their stuff. And we can see their things and say, oh, well, this might be taken as bad from some other writer but when stephen king or patrick rothless does it then we say ah genius yeah stephen king is a is a a great offender of this right where he's ballooned his novels from you know 150 200 page affairs in his early career to you know six seven eight hundred page affairs that you know there i have in fact had moments in stephen king novels where i was like what is this what has happened what what is this book about i don't even remember what the plot is in this book anymore um so yeah i i can see this your your approach and your feeling about it um i will disagree because i think that this is such a prototypical film and because you're a Hitchcock apologist, apparently. And I like Hitchcock. I like it. I I buy it. I think it's very engaging. Um, and I and I think that you know it's engaging in a way that hasn't become terribly hackneyed. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, so I'm going to shut up now and let you ask some questions. Sure. And that first question I always ask is, do we care about this film? I think we have to. Um, and I think at, at the very least, for the fact that this comes out, uh, you know, just a few years before the first James Bond film, and I really agree with w what I read, um, where they talk about this being, you know, the first James Bond film. It sets up that formula that 
you know, it has been repeated and repeated and repeated where you have, like you pointed out, you have a femme fatale, you have a shadowy government organization, you have a criminal organization, there are good-looking people, there are sports cars, um, you know, they're doing sort of glamorous things like being on an expensive train, right? I, I think that even if, even if you don't care for how exactly this film executes this formula i think it begins to set it up right they use cary grant who even though he's perhaps a little uh older than you know we we might think is appropriate in this role um he's still a glamorous good-looking you know sex icon again perhaps long in the tooth at this point but uh, you know, you, you have that sort of set up, right? And the same with Eve. You have a femme fatale. There's a formula here that I think that they're really creating or or at least doing very well um, that becomes replicated. I agree with all your stuff you're saying about this, and I think it's probably maybe best if we discuss them in the context of our second question. But I'm not utterly sold on the fact that we should care about this film. It does prefigure a lot of the things that we now consider to be tropes in action thriller films. But let's go ahead and go to our second question. And okay. what do we owe? So you've mentioned a lot of things of these these tropes, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that we owe to this film. I also noticed a few things that I kind of glanced around at. We've got Leonard, the second to Van Damme. He's you know doing that crushing of the fingers as Cary Grant is falling off the mountain thing. Yes. That's a huge trope these days, and I wasn't finding a lot of stuff that happened before this film. I also think the idea of, you know, the double agent femme fatale. I was thinking of Indiana Jones' The Last Crusade, where the doctor turns out to be a bad guy the whole time. That was a similar thing happening with one part of Eve's character, right? Because she's ultimately still a double agent for the good guys. And so I saw a bit of that there as well. I think some of these bigger set piece scenes i think the crop dusting machine gun equipped plane is a perfect example of this that we have fabricated a reason to have this action scene basically yeah because you're right i mean it would be very easy for them to just drop someone off and shoot him but it but it's a it's sort of a high reality high reality is not exactly what i want a high drama maybe high drama right yeah i think that's maybe more along the lines of what i'm looking for right like this you know of course there's an easier way to do this but we want we want to see it in an extravagant way right because it's a thriller and and you know james bond films overblow this you know especially in the 70s and 80s um and even into the 90s perhaps um that you have these like ridiculous drawn out things where just shoot james bond right but you don't you can't because who wants to go see that? You know, you want to see high high drama. Yeah. So, so I'm with you. I understand. So let's ask our third and final question then. Does this film hold up? I absolutely think it does. I had a hell of a time watching this film. I enjoyed myself greatly. I had quite the opposite experience. I think while the film still looks good, in fact, it definitely looks better than our last film that we watched for our super secret bonus content of patreon <laughs> which was jaws 3 film that happens what excuse me jaws 3d it's officially called jaws 3 ethan <laughs> it uh looked terrible and this film still looks pretty good 
I think the part that doesn't hold up is that length, the length and the genre. I don't think match up. Well, I, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this one because I, you know, I just had a, a different experience and perhaps this comes from our own preferences in terms of genre um, and director and cinematographer, right? Um, and, and just our own tastes, which I think is a, you know, a big point in this podcast is that, you know, you and I have very clearly found how our tastes differ. Um, and I think this might end up being a nice uh, example of where we, you know, like and dislike certain things. Well, there you have it, folks. Why don't you continue to join us as we journey through the remaining what is it, 54 films of the list to see our self-discovery of taste. And you can start next time with the next film on this list, which is MASH. MASH. Oh, that's exciting. Should I do some more music with my mouth? You certainly get... should not. That's absolutely <laughs> something that should not happen. Bum, 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 That's the end of it because that was just a few seconds. <laughs> I was going to say, at first I was like, what part of the song is he doing? But until next time, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I never discuss spoilers on an empty stomach. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.